Welcome to the Specify Growth Podcast. I'm your host, Tats Nakagawa of Castagra Products. Each week, I talk to leaders and experts about how to overcome adversity, grow massive organizations, and how to create meaningful change in the building materials and construction industry. Today's guest is April McLean. She's a community builder, choreographer, and sprint master. So April, thank you. Thank you for being on the show. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. So my podcast is in, you know, talks about the building industry and what can be you know, applicable to it. And, you know, for you, I think community is huge. But before I jump into that, I want to talk about your background, because, you know, when, when I go to people's LinkedIn profiles, I look to see how they sort of describe themselves. And you have <laughs> community builder, choreographer, Ooh. and sprint master, which, you know, maybe requires some explaining. Yeah. Yeah. I guess so. Which part though? Which part is the explanation part? Well, just maybe your, your background, you're very open about your background. Yeah. Community builder. My official title right now is community manager, but it's a funny title to me because there are so many things that people do that are just naturally community. Like I feel like most of us, many of us in this space are building community all the time by default. So Community builder. I had that on my profile before I joined this team because it's it's kind of the only thing I care about. It's obsessive and not in the terms, maybe in even surprising ways, not in very traditional ways that we look at community building, but we can come back to that. I owned a dance studio for adults for 11 years. And creatively speaking, choreography is the place that I think I thrive. I'm most engaged. I'm most energized by when I'm choreographing, when I'm teaching dance, when I'm sort of in that problem solving creative mode. So I will never not be that. In fact, I'm, there's going to be another studio opening up. I'm going to open a a studio locally as well. And then Sprint Master is super fun. For many years, I worked for an accelerator lab and I ran what's called design sprints. They were um, pioneered by Google Ventures and they are It's a five-day event that takes you from idea to working prototype so that you can sort of bypass the months or years of agonizing over whether to launch a new product or feature. And they call them sprint masters, the facilitators, which is so fancy sounding. And then when I explain it, it's like, oh, so you just hosted this event, facilitated. Yep. But I'm a sprint master. (laughs) What are those steps? Like for someone that's never... Oh, yeah. I mean, every day is different. So it's, it's such a beautiful framework. It's something that I, I crave it to get back to it at some point, but first of all, buy the book sprint, if you have any interest in this and think about what it would mean for five days to be in a room with just like two or three to five stakeholders and like being in this highly engaged mode where you're making decisions together through both your normal sort of brainstorming, but it's all it's all funneled through these games. One of my favorite, for example, is called the museum. And you have, you're at this point in the process where you're ready to start honing in on what this prototype should really look like. And so everybody silently kind of sketches out their ideas for what, what they want it to be. And you're not allowed to put names on anything. And then you tape up all the sheets on the wall and you give everybody stickers. And they take these stickers and they put their stickers next to the components they like the most. So it becomes this sort of like heat map where you can see where everybody was drawn to 
that's just one example. Every day has a different theme to it, but they're all highly interactive. It's so much fun. Yeah. I mean, I, I haven't gone through a sprint myself, but I feel like it's a judgment-free zone. Would that be yes. correct? It's super important that if you, the weirder, the better. There's so many times where just the weirder, the better. And that's one of the reasons why I don't enjoy audible brainstorming. I think when you're in a room full of people, there's always going to be a few people who dominate the conversation and are really comfortable vocalizing. And you're not going to hear from those that aren't, but also the first person who speaks usually primes the room and it, it kind of hinders the ability to just go off in weird tangential directions, which is really important when you're in the exploratory process. So yeah, judgment-free. And the role of the facilitator is to keep things moving. It's very time-oriented. You set a timer over everything. And when the timer goes off, that's it. There's no negotiating with it, but also to consistently read the room. So there's a lot of EQ involved. You just kind of draw people back, reel this in. It's, it's really fun. It's like my sweet spot. Yeah. It sounds like the timer helps uh, or stops overthinking. Yes. Yeah, which I'm the queen of. So, it, <laughs> <laughs> all right. So, you know, how does that tie into community building? I define community building as anything that gets people in the room where they feel engaged, valued, and moved towards like a common purpose, which, oh, that made me want to gag just saying it because it was so <laughs> like corporate cliche sounding. I made it up on the spot. But my particular flavor of community building is I'm really really disinterested in anything virtual. I try my best because I know that's where we live and proximity is a real hindrance sometimes to building your circle. So I, I very much understand the value of virtual community building, but in person is where I get the most excited about. And that looks like so many different things. There are so many things created to facilitate in-person community. Yeah, for sure. Now, Obviously, for someone that prefers sort of in person, yeah. you must be very sensitive to things that, you know, although do not, you know, fully replicate in any way the in-person experience, mm -hmm. but seem like a good idea. What are some things you've run across that are virtual, but seem like a good idea to sort of, I don't know the right word is mitigate, but to improve that experience virtually? Like what are, what are some of the most effective virtual experiences that I've seen? Yeah, because, you know, you're sort of a sense, a very, um, you know, focused. We, you love that sort of, you know, vibe where people come together actually yeah. face to face, which means that you're very critical of the, some of the, or very aware of the limitations of virtual, but you yeah. also probably are aware of things that are good mm -hmm. that are helping the virtual side. Yes, that's a great point. It's not done very successfully very often. And yep. I believe that's the case because people are under the impression that you can take something that used to happen in person and just put it online. Yep. And being online requires this whole different set of tools. It requires a different a sensibility to the way you approach people. And it definitely requires a different cadence. So when people just try to translate it online, a lot of that stuff got really rough. And the times that I've actually had a good experience have been, actually, my work just did something recently that I was totally dreading. It was like, we're going to have this all this this big meeting on Zoom. Um, it's going to be a, a team building 
sparking good conversation. And I had to drag myself in and not because it's my work. I, I work for a really wonderful company, but just in general, Zoom socials, you know, icebreakers, the whole thing. And I really loved what they did because they would ask a probing question, not a question like, I don't know, what are some of the cheesy ones that are out there? You know, <laughs> I can't even think of it. There's just so many bad icebreakers, like two truths and a lie, or uh, I don't know. But they, they asked like really interesting kind of unique questions such as what's the history of your name? Tell us the story about how you got your name. And then they would put you in these groups of three and you would tell that story and then you could come back and then they would ask another cool question. Only this time you're all dropping it in chat. And then they call someone else to say, Hey, what, what did you see go into chat that stood out to you? And you get to say, well, I saw this person's answer. It was really interesting. So they knew how to mix up breakout groups into the full group, when it should be a group discussion, when it could just be sort of a lighthearted poll on Zoom. And I think that kept things moving in a really nice direction. The other thing that I will say is not everybody should host virtual events. And I wish companies got a little more deliberate about who they hire to facilitate these things. Because like the woman who facilitated this, she was great. And I think one of her attributes that they all need is this ability to be playful and fun, but also have a thick skin because you sort of know most of the people in the room don't really want to be there. And you have to be willing to be patient and kind of chisel through that to get to the good stuff. I love that. That's wonderful. Okay. <laughs> so let's go into your love, which is community building in person. Now <laughs> you started on so Sony Music. How much of that came from there originally? None. <laughs> I hated it. that job. I actually hated that job. Yeah. <laughs> what what drove you nuts? So without going into too much detail. Um. Oh, detail's fine. <laughs> no, it's fine. I worked in marketing for Sony Music, so my job was was sort of like guerrilla marketing in some ways. It was hitting the streets, uh, marketing new albums, and then we had this venue in town. And when so Sony signed artists would come in, I would also greet them, kind of take care of them, make sure fans knew they were in town which sounds very glamorous. And indeed there were aspects of it. Like we signed John Legend and before he was even famous, I was at a tiny little Starbucks in Austin, Texas with him um, as he was like setting up. And I wish I would have known then, you know, <laughs> I would have exchanged numbers and made a friend. So that's cool. But the sex, drugs and rock and roll cliche is is a cliche for a reason. And so the, the sort of like debauchery when you're out at these events is not my type of community building. It's not my cup of tea. You know, you see like people cheating on their spouses and passed out drunk in the hallways and it's just kind of the nature sometimes of the entertainment industry. And I never felt comfortable there. The other thing is that particular culture of the team I was on, and I don't think it actually exists anymore, this team, was very, <laughs> for lack of a better word, very judgy about music choices. Like if you dare liked anything mainstream, they were all just kind of like, ew. And it was just, it, who cares? Like, listen, to you you want to listen to Nickelback? Listen to Nickelback. You do you. It's it's fine. But it was just, none of it felt like community building to me. Yeah. And I, I'm sure you get this question a lot, which is, you know, it's a company that has no sort of, what you say, ability to community build that wants to do community build. And they say, I got five minutes, teach me how to do this. 
which is not realistic. <laughs> but let's say, you know, a company comes genuinely and says, hey, I want to start to make the steps of doing this better. How would you explain those steps to them? Yeah. So shameless plug, I'm building a course for this right now. It's on Maven. <laughs> The first step is the step no one wants to do, which is why there's a lot of unsuccessful communities. But this first step of defining your community's mission is the most critical. And I think the word mission is just fraught with issues. Like we're so sick of hearing the words, mission statement, mission, mission, this, our mission, that, and it's, it's like this empty word, but a lot of brands are turning to community building because it's the cool new thing. And they're really not thinking through one, where do you want your community to really do? Where, what is it that, you, what's the change that you're seeking for them to make? I don't think they like that question because most of the time it's, well, I just want to, I just want to expand my influence. Like I just want my brand to be more beloved, more talked about in that case. And this is true of Sony music at the time. You're not looking to build a community. You're looking to build an audience. So don't waste time saying that you're building community because the you're not going to be able to keep people engaged long enough to care. So just that first component of understanding what it is that you want them to do and why should they even want to do it is, is the part that we skip and it's the most important part. And I would always say start there. Wow. Okay. That's good. <laughs> and then what are some of the other steps, um, whether they're in order or not, it doesn't matter, but what are some of the other steps that follow that? Yeah. If, so if you, if you want to build a community, you need to know why you need to understand what are the actions that would drive that mission. So if your mission is to, I don't know, bring awareness to some sort of climate tech issue, what are the actual things people are going to do? What are the events? What are the, I don't know, I don't want to think about climate tech, but what are the things you would have them do that drive that mission forward? So now you have these objectives that you're looking to drive them into. And now you have to look at the values. What are these people going to behave like? What are they going to talk like? What will you allow? And much more importantly, what will you not allow? Having very, very firm boundaries so that people can filter themselves in and out and you can sort of crowd, like maintain the quality of the group. You need to know what platforms are going to be important. And people deliberate this way too much. Facebook group, circle, mighty networks, we're going to do this. Like just I think that they over deliberate because they're looking at what could happen with a group. Like one day, this group is going to XYZ. Therefore, we need a group that allows all that to happen. You only, or sorry, a platform that allows that to happen. You only need the platform that serves you right now. Don't overanalyze the tools. Like, what do you need right now? Pick a platform and go. You need to own the information. So, for example, if you're in, if you're doing a Facebook group, never allow them to just go straight to Facebook to join. They should always either have to enter their email first or go through your website, just some way to capture that information so that if the platform goes away, you still own your community. And then you need to have the bane of my existence, metrics that you are tracking. And the metrics around community is a whole other horrible beast to talk about. Horrible beast. Um, horrible beast. <laughs> <laughs> I was, I was going to go there. So now I'm just trying to figure out how I should ask my next question. But <laughs> how do you know if you're making progress? Because the initial action in anything, you know, me coming from the marketing world, if nothing is happening, how do you know at any given time that you're on the right track? My colleague, Ethan is really good at community building and he uses this metaphor. I'm going to get, I'm going to mess it up. 
he says something to the effect of, um, how much does your dog love you? And then his (laughs) second question is, now how much does your mailman love you? Okay, you can't really put those into metrics. You can't quantify them, but you know your dog likely loves you more than your your mailman. And I I love that because unfortunately for people who are, are very data focused, communities are a qualitative play. And all of the metrics that we use, we do have metrics because you sort of, you know, with anything, you need to be able to measure something, but they're always proxy metrics. Like you really cannot measure the affection of a community. But for me, a couple of key signs are, do they talk to each other when I'm not around? So if I see that the community lives on without me needing to be there to facilitate conversation and keep things going, that's when I know that something's starting to work in the right direction. Yeah, for sure. And what I got out of that is if you own a dog or you're a pet lover, then you're going to be better at developing communities. (laughs) If you own a dog, you're better at everything. It's just that's the universal truth of owning a dog. (laughs) You know, we we have a lot of dog owners in our company, so you're going to get a lot of support for that. (laughs) I'm obsessed myself. Yeah. That's awesome. For people that don't know, the, the community that you know you you are sort of cultivating and growing currently has a lot of entrepreneurial energy and you do yeah. as well. Yeah. What are some unique things that you've learned? Because you you came from the outside, being part of the community, now being on the inside. Mm-hmm. In that transition, what have you learned? From being the a member of them and now being behind the scenes? Yeah, behind the scenes, now having to cultivate this. Is there any learning, any unexpected things that you learned or, or you know, confirmed from what you knew coming in? Yeah, I don't know if it was unexpected, but I certainly wouldn't have been able to articulate this. Before coming on board, I the community that I was taking care of, the demographic was mostly women, 25 to 40. Uh, and they're dancers or they attend dance classes. So they're more creative minded, artistically minded. It's not a, a group of entrepreneurs and operators. And a lot of that community building was like is emotional caretaking. You would have people walking in that the only reason they come to your space, the space that you created is because it's the one outlet they have and they are going through divorces or dealing with their parents' death or like the body image issues because we're in a dance studio and we're standing in front of a mirror. And so your sensibility about emotionally caring for people and having a really sharp radar is really refined through something like that. And so then I joined this group and these people are, they're ambitious, they're bold, they're not, they no BS, they tell it like it is. Sometimes they're obnoxious. Like there's, there's, you know, they're all these, yeah, yeah. And um, I think for the first month or two, it was like, boof, I don't even know what to say. They're just going to yell at me over everything. <laughs> but as I've been there longer, I have found that there are two things that are true. All communities reward people who are comfortable in their own skin. So I don't put on airs inside the group. I don't pretend to know things that I don't know. I will outright say, I don't know what that is. I don't pretend to speak everybody's language in the group. A great example of this is I'm not interested in the world of blockchain. I've gotten my foundation education in there like so that I don't sound like a total nincompoop, but it's just not something that naturally plays to my interests. And so I don't try to engage in that in any way. And I think that the, the community has been very 
I feel very connected to them at this point. After the last year, the DMs that I exchange are always very warm. Even if they're mad at me, they end up in a very warm place just by being me. And the second thing I've learned is actually every group is emotional and you're dealing with people's emotions no matter what. So where I would have thought the former, the dance studio group is like highly emotional people. And now I'm dealing with highly logical people. These people are very emotional. They just put it through, they, they hide it in different ways and it they they throw it at you through different words. Mm. So when somebody in the group is like, yeah, 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 and I get into a DM with them, you just keep stripping away and you strip away and you strip away. And the truth of it is you bruise their ego or they are feeling inadequate over something or they're feeling unheard or whatever it is. Like humans kind of are all the same once you get all the layers peeled off. Yeah. Can you give some form of, you know, broad example of, of how that kind of, I mean, you do it naturally, but you've had to strip away the layers and, and, and are patient and, and do that. Yeah. Ooh, it's hard sometimes. Yeah. Sometimes what I'm thinking inside and what I do outside are two entirely different things. Yeah. I would say it was actually a couple months ago I had posted something and one of the members made this just like really, really rude, snarky statement. Like, well, maybe it's something to the effect of, well, maybe if you knew how to do your job, this wouldn't happen. Mm. And that statement is like, <laughs> man, do I have a lot of thoughts about that? And <laughs> when something like this happens, the hum- like the more primitive side of me wants to really just like tell somebody off. And that's not useful at all. So the more logical side of me realizes it's kind of an irrational statement. What, what, like, what this person is saying is actually irrational. Maybe if I knew how to do my job, the odds that they know what my job even is are really low. So there's clearly something else going on here. So when I responded, I said, so I, I just asked a simple question, like what part of, what part of the job do you think that I can do better in? And then got another snarky answer. I responded with another question. Oh, do do you, he said something like my posts were rejected because blah, blah, blah. And I said, I just looked in in the history. I, I only saw this. Can you like help me understand what the post was? And the more you ask questions, the more it comes out that really all this is about is this person felt like their contribution to the group wasn't valuable because I had moderated and like it violated some sort of rule. And that's all it was. It, it was just a pride thing. But the more questions you ask, the more you'll get the right information. And then when it becomes, it gets down to a point where it's no longer useful to do it in public, then I'll usually take it to DMs. And it's so funny to me how people change in direct message. Mm. The persona that they give you publicly, and then they're just teddy bears in direct message. It's like, by the time you're done, they're like, thank you so much. And that's just one example. Why, why do you think that is? I mean, we're like, when you go to DMs, is it, did you deescalate it enough? What, what, uh, what, why do you think it changes? Yeah. I mean, I'm sure by then it was deescalated, but this has actually been true across the board where there's people inside the group that are kind of always hard nosed. Yeah. And then when I'm in message with them, they're very kind. And I think it's sort of, I think it's a combination of two things. It's the culture of the group to be like hard charging. And also it's like the keyboard warrior effect. You know, when you're behind anonymity or kind of protected in group think, you're more willing to bleh. But when you're really faced with a human one-on-one, you, you, it's, it's much harder to act that way when that person is right in front of you. And that's my theory of what's going on anyway. 
Yeah, I get it. So if I were to sort of sum up your process in, in a simple way, <laughs> yeah. curiosity is caring. Curiosity is just the only rational way to get to the bottom of a problem. Got it. Yeah, is what I would say. I think it is caring, but I was just I was just talking about this in my podcast, actually, this idea of, you know, that old F. Scott Fitzgerald quote, the uh, the sign of first rate intelligence is the ability to hold two opposing ideas in your mind and still retain the ability to function. I love that. <laughs> it's, it's to me, it gets down to the real heart of why people have these arguments and debates. And you see like Democrats, Republicans, you know, left, right, whatever it is, these blah, 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 blah. And they're just unable to retain the fact that maybe both parties have a point. It's just, it can't possibly be. And in all of the conflict that I come in, I try, I mean, I'm a very emotional creature as well, but I just try to remember very few people, very few people's stance is just completely irrational. Almost all of it is coming from some lived experience. And so if you can just be curious about that experience, you can get a lot farther than just like, yeah, you're wrong. No, that's perfect. Well, you obviously think about these things and other things a lot. How do you think about your, I don't know what's the right word, evolution or future? Like what, what is important to you? Mm-mm, that's a juicy question. I liked that one. I'm unprepared for it. <laughs> oh, the evolution part is, is a very interesting word because I think you know a bit about my background, but I grew up in foster care. So I moved through 22 foster homes. I was pregnant by the time I was 15. I had my daughter at 16. I emancipated at 17. And at the time I emancipated, there was no, like there's, there's been legislature, I can never say that word, legislature mm-hmm. that has been passed that gives transitional services to foster youth who are leaving the system. There wasn't then. So I lived in my car with a one-year-old and, and then a motel. And then, you know, this, this sort of, so this idea of evolution, because I came from a place of not only did I never consider my future or plan for the future, but I, I would have never even, it would have not occurred to me that I did have any power over my future or that I had any potential to do anything. It was just like, one foot in front of the other. Can I get diapers today? Can I get food today? And also I don't really like who I was in those years, in those younger years and moving into my twenties, I was in such a survival mode for such a long time that you almost lose all awareness of other people. Like I'm, I'm pretty sure I was a total obnoxious pill for a very long time because my sense of like human connection and understanding. I mean, it's just, I was just kind of a a lost cause for a second, but so much of that has informed where I am today. The reason I started a dance studio is that I took a dance class when I was 25. So I started really late and it was the first therapy that worked for me. It totally connected me with my physical presence. It put me in community with other people without having to talk. And that was such a high for me that I had to create a space where other people could experience it as well. And it was only through owning that studio that I realized how deeply I loved community building because um, it, it's not, um, and this is going all the way back to the beginning of the podcast where I said, we should come back to that. I do not like crowds. I don't like social interactions. You would be hard pressed to get me to be very social at any point in time. I'm very much an introvert. I like being alone. I like traveling alone. 
But what I do love is being able to facilitate things behind the scenes. If I can create the experience and then get people in, that makes my heart sore. I don't want to be in the center of the experience. So that's what a dance studio is. You're creating the experience. That's now what I'm doing with my current role. You're creating the experience. And when that has revealed one thing to me, and that one thing is I care more about human loneliness than I care about any other cause in the whole world. The fact that anybody should be like truly lonely makes me like ache inside. And so almost everything that I gravitate towards has to do with that element of human loneliness, which is, I wish, I honestly wish that wasn't of interest to me, (laughs) To, to be frank. I wish I had other interests. But that's that's you, right? That's yeah. that's that's where you, that's where you're at. So, yeah. no, wonderful. Thank you, thank you. Very personal story, and I think that's very valuable. Now, I love the way you think about things. Is there anything that I didn't ask you that you commonly share or you want to share? I think most of what I talk about really does revolve around like seeing people. So I'm pretty sure I I. Uh preached about that enough. Yeah, I don't think so. The only other thing I would say is my goal is to live a life where I don't need to be on my laptop for work whatsoever. I'm not interested in in this sort of, maybe that's why digital nomad would never work for me. I don't know. But being on my feet and like highly physically engaged, whether that's like I've directed videos, dance videos before, or put together productions like that, that to me is, is the place to be. I think the computer has become just sort of like a symbol for zoom out of a city, you know, and pretend like you can see through the roofs and you just have little, little pings, little people on their laptops every day, hundreds of thousands of them. They hardly ever leave anymore. Um, uh, It's just not the kind of life that I wish we were living. Well, well, thank you for taking the time to do a additional (laughs) digital call because your information is priceless. I mean, it's my job now. So (laughs) thank you, April course. Thank you for listening to the Specify Growth Podcast today. Make sure you check out youtube.com forward slash Tats Talks for video of today's podcast. Hit the subscribe button for upcoming episodes. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.